the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Good day and welcome to the Irish Times business podcast. I'm Arthur Beasley. Today we're discussing permanent TSB, which faces a minimum £55 million in costs over serious failings in the stewardship of its mortgage business. Later we'll discuss Fairtrade smartphones, a new kind of product which seeks to remove conflict minerals from phone technology. But first to permanent TSB. The institution may be back in profit day by day, but it's in big trouble because of its management of interest rates on almost 1,400 mortgages. It faces a €20 million central bank fine and almost €35 million in compensation payments. I'm joined in studio by Kieran Hancock, Irish Times finance correspondent, and by David Hall, co-founder of the Irish Mortgage Holders Organisation. But first to you, Kieran Hancock. What's the genesis of this permanent TSB affair? Yeah, sure. I I should say, first of all, that uh, permanent TSB actually uh, reported a whopping loss for the first six months of €431 but that was based on exceptionals of €432 and they made an underlying profit of €1 based on their day-to-day operations, if you like, and that was the first such uh, profit of uh, 2007. They had to issue those results one day early on uh, Tuesday and the result of that was because of this mortgage redress uh, program that they've announced, which uh, is basically to deal with 1,372 customers, mortgage customers of permanent TSB and a former subsidiary called Springboard Mortgages. And it dates back to uh, a period, basically most of this happened between 2006 and 2011. So it goes right back almost a decade. Yes, absolutely. And essentially what happened was these people were on uh, fixed rate uh, mortgages or discounted uh, trackers and they were entitled at the end of that period to go on to a tracker rate. And because of uh, standard variable rates became cheaper at that time, um, a lot of them opted to, to basically come off their fixed rate or their discounted tracker earlier. And essentially what should have happened was that permanent TSB should have informed those customers that they were entitled to the tracker rate, but it didn't. It put them on the standard variable rate instead. And over a period of time, they've ended up paying a lot more money. Now, up to 61 account holders of that 1,372 have lost their properties. Um, Permanent TSB said yesterday that they can for sure say that 22 lost their properties as a result of their miscalculation, effectively, of their failure. And uh, of those 22, 12 involved, uh, sorry, 10 involved uh, private residents and uh, 12 involved buy-to-let investment properties. So you're looking at 10 people losing their family homes. Yeah, 10 family homes have basically gone by the wind and you can imagine all the stresses and strains that were involved, the possible uh, family rows and, you know, maybe divorces or... Uh, splits, etc., uh, that might have happened at that time. And um, those people have had their credit records shredded as a result of uh, permanent TSB's action. So what they're proposing to do for those, for that cohort of people, is to give uh, €50,000 compensation for people who lost their, their homes and 25000 for those who lost a buy-to-let investment property. In addition to that, you will, uh, you'll get your, your debt written off, um, the outstanding debt that, that remained when the, the house was surrendered or was uh, taken back by the bank. 
And in addition to that, they're also offering that if the house price has gone up in value since you lost it, that they will they will give you a sum to reflect that. Um, the bank said yesterday, uh, laughably, I thought that they want people to be in the position they were in before all of this uh, took place. But if you've lost your home, you've lost your home. There's no turning back the clock on that. So whatever about the people who uh, you know who were simply overcharged, that's one thing. But for the people who've lost their home, that's it. There's there's no going back on that. And in addition, they've also set up two appeals processes whereby people can. Uh, and so, some of the uh, people who, who will be on the appeals panels uh, will be independent of the bank and there'll be uh, lawyers and accountants and so forth. And uh, one appeal panel will deal with those who lost their properties and the other appeal panel will deal with the other cohort of people, the other 1,300 and odd people uh, who were, to put it mildly, simply overcharged. Karen Hancock, how did it reach this point? Uh, wh- what happened that led to the bank's yeah. disclosure yesterday that it was uh, going now to kind of enter into this compensation sure. process? This is something that's been bubbling for years and, and plenty of complaints. I'm sure David could tell us exactly how many. Plenty of complaints were taken to the Financial Services Ombudsman uh, some years ago uh, by, by customers who felt that they were getting a raw deal. Um, the Financial Services Ombudsman upheld um, most of those complaints. Uh, and found against the bank. The bank appealed this to the High Court. The High Court uh, upheld the Financial Service Ombudsman's uh, ruling and the bank then decided that it would take it to the Supreme Court. And the High Court upheld the ruling in August 2012 and it was only in February of this year that the bank effectively called off the dogs. And uh, really what happened in the meantime, the the catalyst for that was uh, in June of last year, the central bank began an enforcement investigation into all of this. We're not precisely sure what triggered this enforcement, uh, whether it was a whistleblower or whether, uh, you know, for some other reason, the central bank decided that it was going to have a look at this matter and and enforcement proceedings should ensue. But that it was the central bank's enforcement uh, notice to permanent TSB, which basically led to them conducting what they call the scoping exercise of account holders to see precisely how many were affected by all of this and, you know, whether there was a case to be answered and whether compensation should be paid and so forth. And the central bank has has basically forced um, the issue on this. So in February of this year, they called off the dogs in terms of the Supreme Court. So and, right up to we five now months have, ago. Yeah, we now have a situation where the central bank um, is preparing to fine permanent TSB. That hasn't happened yet, but it will happen and that fine could be up to 20 million euro. David Hall, what's your response to all of this? I think, you know, um, Kieran's outlined correctly the sequence of events. There's a couple of concerning questions just from a procedural administrative perspective that that, uh, come from this. First of all, where were the central banks since 2011? Over 80 customers complained to the Financial Services Ombudsman in 2011. And as Kieran said, the Financial Services Ombudsman found in their favour. High Court found in their favour. And... The previous management of Permanent TSB and the current management of Permanent TSB continue the same process of protracting and delaying this. And you've got to go back to understand the impact on a customer. When a customer is faced with the extreme measure of losing their family home, that doesn't just happen overnight. It happens over a period of time and a period of years where they've been deemed unsustainable, they've been written to, they've been threatened, they've been dealt with under the Code of Conduct for mortgage arrears, they're being asked for the keys of their family home, and many of them we're at such breaking point they actually handed back the keys those who forgo their homes and lost their homes as a direct result of this mess from uh, permanent TSB and this error also were pursued for the residual debt 
let's not forget, permanent TSB, like other banks within the state, don't write off the debt automatically, having determined you're unsustainable in relation to paying your mortgage. They pursue you. They've had a sequence of legal correspondence and legal threats after the repossession. So then you've got the individuals who should have been paying lower amounts of the mortgage, who simply overpaid. Then you've those who should have been paying lower, but had to pay higher, and they suffered immense stress, immense financial difficulty, having to make serious choices in respect of other financial transactions, other debts that they were pursued as a result of, where they had to prefer permanent TSB to ensure keeping their home. And don't forget, in parallel with this, you have other people who you can see the direct consequence of not paying your mortgage, which is a loss of a family home, and other debts then were sacrificed. They then responded by having legal proceedings against them in relation to other debts. So immense pressure, immense stress from a state-owned bank to management teams uh, pursuing that policy. And this pertains, as you say, to the old management of the bank, which essentially was there when the economy crashed, and also to the new management which was sent in to clean the whole thing up. And part of the cleaning up was a decision to bring this to the Supreme Court, where a financial services ombudsman, a high court, ruled in favour. 1,300 to 1,500 clients were affected. And don't forget, very important, Arthur, to understand, this is a one-dimensional issue. It's only permanent TSB's view. The customers have not been engaged with yet. There's been no mechanism to engage with customers. The the central bank has had its enforcement uh, section deal with this matter, but the consumer protection component has been asleep. The consumer protection component has not engaged yet with any customers. Their story has not been heard. And this will run on for a long, long time. And many people and many clients of uh, permanent be affected by this are clients of ours. And a number more have contacted us today. During those conversations, a number of key messages come through. Deep-seated anger. Deep-seated anger at the core issue that arose, the handling of this by the bank, but a greater passion in relation to how the bank handled this yesterday. This is a key issue. Why why yesterday? Because the bank decided to go on a solo PR run. They decided to do what the group think does in relation to large banks. They decided to consistently take the pattern of the bank. How do we protect the bank most? We've screwed customers. The financial service ombudsman has said you've screwed customers. Told you to put the back on trackers. You said no. You went to the high court. They told you to put the back on trackers. You said no. The new management team put this to the Supreme Court. And as Kieran mentioned earlier on, the only reason this was pulled out of the Supreme Court in February of this year, four years later, was because the central bank said, we've caught you and we're coming after you. And the bank said, it's actually irrelevant what the Supreme Court says. Our Supreme Court ultimately is the credit, as the central bank were pulling out and we withdrew the proceedings. Kieran I think Hancock. the point that David's making in relation to yesterday is that um, the bank is going to take two weeks to write to all of the customers. Now, yesterday they went out and told the whole world uh, basically what had happened and what their plans are for the mortgage redress uh, scheme. Now, I, I think a lot of these customers, David would know better than I because he's been talking to them, but a lot of these customers really felt sick to their stomach about the way that happened because they'd been put through the mill over the past uh, few years in relation to this and the bank didn't even have the courtesy to inform them first of what it was planning to do. But it's not just the bank. Uh, the, the statements that came from uh, permanent TSB uh, were choreographed with a statement from the central bank as well. So I think the central bank really should should look at this too. I think in, f- in future cases, I really think that um, the, the customers uh, impacted by all of this, they should get a heads up, uh, perhaps in advance or at least at the same time as the whole world is, is being told on this. And uh, David's point about the, the current management team as well made, there's been a lot of criticism of uh, permanent TSB and what went on before the crash and the consequences of all of that. But 
Jeremy Masley, the current uh, chief executive, who deserves credit for turning around the day-to-day performance of the bank since he took over in January 2012. You know, he's the man uh, who sanctioned the court cases to be pursued and, and well, the high court case. it's inconceivable that any court case would be pursued without sanction at the top. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, but, you know, he and the board of Permanent TSB, and this was confirmed by the bank yesterday, they sanctioned... Um, uh, the the appeal to the Supreme Court, um, which came post the High Court decision in in August two thousand and twelve, and he also made it very clear yesterday that you know he's had a good look at it, he's had a good internal investigation, and he can't find any wrongdoing on the part of anybody in relation to this. And he talked a lot about transparency and about accountability uh, since he took over, and yet it seems that nobody's being held to account on this matter within permanent TSB, and that sticks in the throat of a lot of people uh, who've been affected by this. Well, there's a, I mean, the, we're, we're talking about the loss of homes in a, in, a, in a small number of cases, but this extends to uh, almost 1,400 cases. So yeah, it's absolutely. Not, and I should have said earlier that 220 of those cases relate to springboard mortgages. And in those cases, the wrong interest rate was simply applied to their accounts. It was nothing to do with them coming off a, a fixed rate and uh, should have been allowed to go on to a tracker. The, the wrong interest rate was, uh, was applied to those accounts. And, you know, that's unforgivable, really. And it's remarkable with Springboard. Springboard was sold. The book was sold earlier this year. Mm. So we've got clients ringing saying, well, are we with Mars Capital who purchased Springboard? Are we with Springboard? Will Mars Capital reduce our interest rate? Did they buy the loan at a certain thing? So great confusion. And the permanent TSB's priority was to make them look as good as they humanly could in the knowledge that they screwed up. And it was unforgivable to have the error arise in the first place in the treatment of clients and customers during that time. It is absolutely despicable to have a situation arise where you prioritise your own press and media and forgive, you know, forgo informing at a decency those customers, having a helpline available, having financial support, having legal support, having any level of backup and support for those people. And we're saying to those clients and customers, if you have current advisors, which many had, because to be fair, they had good advice. Many people took this challenge. We wouldn't be here today without them having the... The, the, the kahunas to do that up to now. Now we need a situation whereby when the correspondence comes over the next two weeks, they need to seek independent legal advice. We'll provide that to them through the Irish Mortgage Holders Organisation free of charge. We'll provide them with uh, legal representation free of charge in the event they want to challenge that. Kieran mentioned earlier on there's an appeals panel. We're writing to the central bank today to request uh, our representation from our organisation on that appeals panel. And in circumstance where someone wants to take the compensation, they can do so. If they want to take an appeal to the appeals panel, they can do so. Or if they want to deal with this properly and robustly in the High Court where it probably should be dealt with properly, um, they can also do that at no legal cost to them. There is a risk in going to court, obviously, of costs on the other side. But this, in our view, is a slam dunk. Now... I should say at this point that we did invite permanent TSB to participate in this discussion and they declined. They did, however, uh, deliver a statement in which they say that every impacted customer can appeal the redress and compensation amounts which they're proposing this week. And they say all customers can accept the payments immediately, which will be paid within seven days on restraint of instruction forms and can still appeal uh, even after such payments are made. They also say the bank has not said that the loss of ownership is worth €50,000. They have said they will pay €50,000 quickly and painlessly while the customer decides what to do next. They also say that appeals are based on financial losses or non-financial issues, loss of holidays, emigration, depression, etc. And they say that every payment to a customer will include an additional payment for independent advice and that no claim for such a payment is required. Karen Hancock. 
Yeah, that's all very well. They've also said that uh, uh, people can accept the 50,000 or the 25,000 and uh, they, they can go and sue the bank uh, effectively afterwards. Um, that's all very well. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, this, this, this leaves a very bad taste uh, in the mouth. And I, I think in terms of the people who lost their homes, they're about four and a half percent of the total. So it's, it's a small amount. But take the other, um, the other people on that customer and uh, that customer base. Over 1,300 accounts we're talking about. So probably over 2,000 people, you know, roughly speaking. And those, a lot of those people were pushed into arrears. And you can imagine the stresses and strains that were involved in that. A lot of them were simply overcharged. So they couldn't afford the little luxuries in life that we, that we all enjoy. And they were all put through hell um, by the bank as a result of this. And we're supposed to be in an age where um, Irish banking is, is reforming. It's changing its ways. It's bad old ways. And it's uh, uh, re- returning to normalised lending. And yet here we have a state-controlled bank, as David said earlier, which is um, – which – you know, engaged in uh, practices that were, uh, to say the very least, uh, unsavoury in terms of how it treated um, those customers. Uh, and that is post post the crash and post 2011 when, you know, when all of this, all of these interest rate changes had, had basically come through the wash. And it's also the case that any kind of arrears such as these, even if you have not, or not even if in a scenario where you have mm-hmm. not been put out of your home, those kind of arrears follow you around. And those kind of arrears hang over you in any engagements you have with any other financial institution. And, and you know, we have to remember that, uh, you know, it's this was a mistake. People can understand a mistake happening within a bank. What is unforgivable and what was not a mistake was the board, both former and current and former CEO and current CEO. And this, you know, respectfully, could be the end of the current management team and impairment TSB. This is an unforgivable act to firstly suppress a process to give people quick redress to an error that was made by the bank, if you want to call it an error. And secondly, to handle a matter this week, as they've handled it, in my view, has completely compounded both wrongs that were done beforehand and will ensure that many more people are far more annoyed today. I spoke to about a dozen people today who are directly affected to this. And they're not jumping up and down saying, give me the money. There's no conversation. Their conversation was around basic issues of saying, I had to fill out seven financial statements. They asked me where I did my shopping. They asked me, what is the Peter Mark expense for? They asked me personal details and put me through the ringer like anyone else who's in mortgage difficulty would be. But this was their mistake. And then yesterday they told everybody else but me what they were going to do about it. That's where the anger is going to be and that's why more of these cases will end up unnecessarily in court because the current management team have made an unmerciful mess of how to handle this. Why, in your assessment, would they have done nothing after the uh, rulings of the financial services ombudsman? They decided they wanted to not pay out any money. They decided they could save themselves money. They decided this would cost them money. They did their calculations at the time. Uh, we don't know what calculations were done and what the impact would be. And they decided we will fight this because we don't want to, to lose it. The other thing the central bank didn't do yesterday was what they normally do is give assurances that this hasn't happened anywhere else. And that's actually equally concerning. Why June last year do you begin looking at something that's been dealt with for three and a half years and has had a financial services ombudsman? Why doesn't the financial services ombudsman report matters to the central bank, which may be of concern, especially when the High Court upholds its decision, just in case there's other issues that need to be looked at? It didn't give any reassurance that any other lender is not affected by the same thing. Karen Hancock, I mean, you'd have to think 
Uh, well, just to address the, the point yeah. about, you know, why, why would they follow? They mentioned yesterday at the at the press conference, Jeremy Mazin, the CEO, mentioned that there was kind of a wider legal principle at play in relation to their Supreme Court appeal. And this, he wouldn't go into the details of it, but my understanding is that this uh, principle is that uh, the Financial Services Ombudsman found that they should have uh, advised the customers in relation to their uh, their options um, uh, instead of informing. And it's a little nuanced, if you, if you like, but, uh, you know, an investment group would advise uh, customers in terms of, you know, what their options are. Should they go for equities or bonds or whatever? Uh, a bank, uh, uh, banks tend to feel that that's not their, you know, that's not their bag. That's not the way they, they operate. Um, so th- the wider legal principle seems to be around that. And, and they felt that they needed to pursue that because there could be implications for them down the road uh, with other uh, mortgage holders, you know, in the future. Oh, yeah, but that's a that's a essentially legal argument. And I'm sure you know you could engage very expensive lawyers or very cheap lawyers or whomever to have a you know a fascinating discourse yeah. around the difference between advice and and informing. But the but the financial basis. Well, yes, but also, but isn't it also the case that the financial services ombudsman is essentially an independent person? This is someone who's impartial. When they hand down a ruling, they hand down a ruling, and that's that. And he only finds in favour of customers six percent of the time. So a ruling of the financial services ombudsman in favour of a consumer mm-hmm. is in of itself a celebration. Yeah. Unfortunately, the bank isn't here to speak for itself, but you know one can only con- yeah, one can only conclude that they felt they were right and they felt that the financial services ombudsman was wrong uh, in uh, his determination. And, and and that's understandable. Then you bring it to the high court, which is due process. But when the high court tells you you're wrong. Then in 2011, you decide to act in the best interest of your customers. Your customers. These are the bank's customers. They're not a commodity. They're not a shelf product. They are their customers who have many other banking aspects with the same bank. And they decided clearly and categorically to appeal this to the Supreme Court in the knowledge, by the way, that everyone at the time understood the Supreme Court before the Court of Appeal came along had an average wait time of three to four years, which meant nothing could have been done. No one sat back in 2011 and said, hang on a minute, of those 10, 12, 20 houses that have been taken away from people, do we still have them in our possession? Have we executed the repossession orders? Do we still have the surrender forms? Have we sold the property? Is there any chance we could hold on and maybe give the properties back to people? There was no humanity shown in this at all. And that's deeply concerning from an allegedly new management team in a state-owned bank controlled by the minister. Yesterday, when this announcement was, came, the silence from government, a deafening silence from government, a deafening silence from the consumer protection component of the central bank. Very, very concerning. And on that point, actually, I asked Jeremy Masding when the minister was informed and, you know, what, what view the department had taken. And he answered to the effect that they have monthly management meetings with the Department of Finance because uh, the state owns 75% of permanent TSB um, and that they had been informed all the way, all the way along. Um, so, you know, the Department of Finance was certainly in the loop on all of this. Okay, I mean, the department would say that they don't engage in day-to-day management of the banks, but nevertheless, the state is in a position of ownership and there was a very clear reporting line. That's what you're well, saying. Well, from time to time now, the department seeks to involve itself in the running of uh, the operation of, of banks. They've made it very clear that they wanted all of the uh, domestic banks to play ball in, in terms of reducing their standard variable rate. So, you know, you can't have it every which way. Sure. Uh, David Hall, uh, we're reaching the end of our conversation here. Um, you, you find yourself in a, a position of prominence on this issue and other issues. Uh, however, there are also uh, some suggestions out there that you might indeed find yourself uh, running for political office in the looming general election. What is the story there? 
But at the moment, the priority for me, as I've obviously got an ambulance company, Lifeline Ambulance, which I'm trying to run at the same time as as de- dealing with the Irish Mortgage Holders Organisation, which I and the board do on a voluntary basis. We've thousands of clients in difficulty. We have a number of hundreds of clients facing repossession through courts. That's what our priority is at the moment. Um, if I'm asked today, am I running in the next general election? It's unlikely. Um, I'm not joining any party in the foreseeable future. And as I say, I've got uh, a, a deep responsibility to those people that we deal with. We've got a fantastic team that we're working with. We're trying to ensure, uh, having this not, issue not been resolved for the last number of years, there's going to be a very difficult four-year period ahead, and I've got to make a decision as to where I'm best placed to help those people. Currently, it's where I am is running the Irish Mortgage Holders Organisation, and as I say, the kitchen cabinet, the real cabinet, is my kitchen cabinet at home, which also has a has a say in this, and that will be discussed during the course of the summer. But at the moment, I have business priorities, I have family priorities, and uh, importantly, I've got the mortgage holders' priorities, uh, which are going to be a very difficult three years ahead. Sounds like we're not going to be seeing your face on the posters in uh, Dublin West. At the moment, unlikely, but not not impossible yet. Um, but it is, as I say, at the moment, I can see myself doing it simply because I have other priorities. If there's an election in November, it's absolutely out of the question. If there's an election in February, March, it's possible, but still unlikely. That a good political answer, yeah. is it? It sounds, it sounds very much. You sound like a TD already. Um, and were you to uh, change your mind and were this to become likely that you were to contend, you'd be contending as an ind- independent. You're not going to join a political party. No, I'd be, the issue of joining any political party is, is, irrespective of what party it is, is that we enjoy independence in relation to the mortgage holders' activity that we have. We have the respect of both um, bizarrely banking institutions, which might not like us, but still we have uh, conversations with them at the highest level on a regular basis. Same with the central bank, same with politicians, and same with customers and, and, and those in distress, and likewise the media. Removing The risk of removing that by joining a political party, being successful or unsuccessful afterwards, removes that entire independence. And that does a disservice to those people to whom we're serving, and they are the priority. So this will be driven by... Uh, my own family, this will be driven by what's in the best interest of uh, the business and the mortgage holders organisation. A collective decision will be made in relation to that, but no, nothing will be done that jeopardises the independence of the Irish mortgage holders organisation for anything that I have an interest in. I have an interest in politics, yes. Would I like to be a TD in the morning? Absolutely. Would I like to be Taoiseach? More importantly, absolutely. So, would I like to be sitting in the front two rows of Leinster House? Yes. But is that possible? And is it possible in the constraints of a of, of family of two five and a half year olds, the nearly six, and I have a business that has been shared my time with the Irish Mortgage Holders Organisation where I've been in a voluntary capacity for the last three years. So as I say, there's a lot of stuff in the mix, um, but absolutely uh, tomorrow morning, am I putting myself on a poster for an election in November? No. Well, it sounded like it sounded like you were, your mind is made up, but now I think we're in the realm of um, denials, which might not necessarily be denials. Anyway, um, it falls to me to thank you, David Hall, for coming in to talk to us, and also to Kieran Hancock, uh, and uh, I'm very grateful to, to you both. Thank you very much. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life September 2014. And now for something completely different. Well, we've all drank fair trade coffee. Some of us have even worn fair trade t-shirts. 
Now we have Fairtrade smartphones, a new kind of phone which aims to remove conflict minerals from your phone chats. I'm joined on the line by Derek Scally in Berlin. Derek, what are these Fairtrade smartphones? Hello there, Arthur. Well, the Fairtrade phone is called the Fairphone, obviously, and um, it's trying to do several things at once. It's a company. It's made by a company uh, based in Amsterdam, and what they want to do is to get us thinking a little bit more about that phone that we pull out of our pockets about 110 times a day, according to research. We stare at these phones the whole time, but we don't really think about what's going on. How did we get this phone? Who paid uh, what price along the way? We know what we paid, uh, but what about the people who came up with uh, many of the thousands of components? Um, what about them? And how long is this phone going to last? Is it going to land on a scrap heap? Is it going to end up in a landfill somewhere? Uh, does the phone company want you to replace your phone every two years? You know, inbuilt obsolescence is something we hear a lot about. And this company in Amsterdam just said, "Hold on, let's 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 pull pull back for a second here. If we can get people buying organic food and thinking about where." their apples are coming from uh, and thinking maybe I should buy the Irish apples instead of the New Zealand apples that were shipped around the world. Why are people not thinking the same way about their phones? And they decided to start a campaign and they decided rather than being the hurler on the ditch, uh, they decided to get into the phone business and, um, and actually start making a phone and then draw attention to how difficult it is actually to make a phone, how many components are involved and how difficult it is to know where those components have come from. And this is what the Fairphone is about. It's it, their slogan is buy a phone, join a movement. And what you do is you 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 sign up, uh, you pay in advance for a phone, and um, the phone is put together. And while you're waiting, and you wait about three or four months because uh, they're made to order, you can then go onto their website and you can learn all about uh, the phone that you've just bought. So uh, you learn about the components, you learn about the chemicals in them, and you learn about what Fairphone is trying to do to make sure that it's a bit more sustainable than your your average uh, smartphone on the market today. Derek, how many of these phones are in circulation right now? Well, they came up uh, 18 months ago with the smart with the Fairphone One, and 65,000 of those were sold. Uh, initially, there was a crowdfunding of 5,000 to get the thing off the ground, but it was a huge success. 65,000 people bought the phone, and now the company's just come out uh, to start taking orders for its improved Fairphone Two. And what they've done, they've learned a lot, they say, this uh, company based in Amsterdam, Fairphone, from their first phone. So this is a slightly better, uh, slightly more uh, up-to-date specs. Um, You you can check the details out in uh, Thursday's uh, tech section. But what they've tried to do is uh, also they've looked at the whole supply chain. If you open up a phone, there's thousands and thousands of parts. And you could technically have thousands and thousands of suppliers, and it's very hard to trace things back. Uh, what they've done is they've tried to reduce the number of suppliers to sort of a, uh, a manageable number. It's still 74, but what they've done is they've tracked back uh, many of the components, including what you mentioned in your introduction, conflict minerals. Now, there, we all have maybe have heard of conflict diamonds, um, which uh, there was a film about it with Leonardo DiCaprio. Conflict, conflict minerals are the same. In every smartphone, you've everything from tin to gold to uh, something called tantalum. And a lot of these minerals can only be found in uh, areas where civil wars are raging. And often mobile phone companies wittingly or unwittingly by buying these 
minerals. Uh, they're buying actually from militias, and these militias are then using the money they earn on these minerals to buy guns and keep keep wars going. So what Fairphone is trying to do is find suppliers of these crucial minerals uh, that aren't conflict minerals, and um, they're trying to do due diligence, so to speak, and to find out if there's a way of buying these crucial elements for your phone that aren't uh, unwittingly uh, car- uh, fueling uh, civil wars. And is it the case that it's possible to have a, a smartphone which doesn't have any of these minerals? Or is you it a question of sourcing simply? These minerals. Um, you have things like tin, uh, you have uh, an, an element called uh, tantalum, and they're all they're used for soldering. Some of them are used in the batteries, some of them are used in the contacts. You can't have these, these little metals, they're in tiny, tiny amounts. But each phone has a tiny amount, and if you sell a huge number of these phones, it's a huge amount of minerals. Therefore, you need a supplier. And some, unfortunately, some of the most reliable suppliers of these uh, of these minerals are um, are militias in places like the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, so the so reliable what we're trying war- to do is we we can't do without the minerals, but they're saying at least we can try and make sure we're buying them from the right type of people. Okay, so instead of relying on reliable warlords, the objective is to rely on reliable other. Yes, and there's another thing too, which I think is just as interesting. The conflict minerals thing is, um, it's it's one thing, but they're also talking about design. Uh, I was talking to one of the designers of the Fairphone, and he was joking uh, that look, we haven't got the, the the thinnest phone on the market, but uh, as it happens, we're heading towards what he called electronics anorexia. All people are interested these days is how thin is my phone, a bit like the models in Vogue. And he said a thin phone might look nice, but it doesn't necessarily make for the best designed phone. And by design, he means durability, because these phones, it's all very well having a nice thin phone, but as soon as you drop it, it doesn't look very nice anymore. So what they've tried to do is have a compromise between slim, so that it'll fit in your pocket, but it'll also look nice after you've dropped it and picked it up again. And uh, and what they've done there is, I think, very, very interesting. I had a hands-on with this phone, and it comes apart in three, in three parts. So the screen, you can pull the phone apart. There's a rubber casing that comes off first, and then you pull in the other direction. The screen comes away. The screen, as you remember, is the first thing to go on a phone. And uh, and then in the middle is the actual circuit board where the sort of the, the bits and pieces of the phone are. So let's say you break your phone screen. You can just order the, the screen and you can replace it yourself. You don't have to go into a repair shop and pay 60 or 80 quid. Um, if the battery goes, you just open up the back of it. The battery will go after a year or two. It's just because of how batteries are made. You can just click in a new battery. Um, and anyone who's, who's bought a, re- a smartphone recently knows that um, smartphone makers, are, I think they view repairs and that as a, as a steady source of income. So they're the determined to lock down their phones and, and make them as... Uh, as uh, impossible to open as possible, so you have to go back to them and pay for an official uh, repair. But they, Fairphone people say, that's just nonsense. Anyone can replace the battery or the screen themselves, and they make it possible to do it. So they're saying it's not only are they trying to make it uh, sustainable from the materials in the phone, they're also trying to make it sustainable that it's actually a phone that will last longer, and when one part in the phone breaks, you don't have to throw out the whole phone or get a new phone. You just replace that bit. You can also take apart the electronics uh, with a regular screwdriver they say they don't recommend people do that but uh, if you're interested you can and if you don't need a special screwdriver you can take out the chip and put in a new chip you can put in new um, ram chips so all in all they're trying to be durable and, and and environmentally friendly and sustainable from all sorts of angles
Well, Derek, it, it all sounds very fair. It all sounds very ethical. It all sounds very sustainable. But the question arises as to whether these phones are actually any good. Well, this is it. The first phone got um, sort of a middling. People said, nice idea, shame about the phone. Uh, the phone, I, a friend of mine has it, and I tried it out, and it was sort of it was behind the curve at the time when it came out 18 months ago. The new phone, I, the, the, the prototype I had in my hand wasn't actually working. It was literally just a, a dummy model. So I have yet to see whether or not it works, but it will have Android 5.1 on it, and the spec, at least on paper, looks quite good. The phone feels quite nice in your hand. It doesn't really look that different to any other of the phones as you'd see, but um, they're hoping that people will be buying this not just for the way it feels in their hand and not just, hopefully it will obviously work and do the job on a, on a day-to-day basis, but they realize that people who buy these phones are conscious that their, their decision to buy this phone and not another phone has a knock-on effect. And uh, I mean, there's 150 million smartphones sold annually in Europe, and the last phone of theirs sold 65,000. So this is literally just a drop, a drop in the bucket. But they're saying there's nobody else doing this. We were anxious to do this and to put it up to the big players to perhaps uh, to make their smartphones a little bit more smart or their phones a little bit more fair. There'll never be a fully fair phone. There's just too many complicated pieces, and it's too hard to track everything back. But um, I think this is a really good start. This is a company with um, with fifty odd people based in Amsterdam, and uh, and they've they're trying to change how we think about our phones. And considering how much dependent we're on our phones, uh, it's perhaps no bad thing. Derek Scully in Berlin, thank you very much indeed. You've been listening to the Irish Times podcast. I'm Arthur Beasley. Tune in again next time.